0: Our scripture today is from Philippians 2, verses 6 through 11. Would you follow along as I read? Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death Let's pray. Father, we come to you, and indeed, as even seen in the text from Philippians, we are our desire is to glorify you. We've been created for the purpose of glorifying you. And a means was made possible, which we celebrate this time of the year, a means which allowed us to have a restored relationship with you, and it's through your Son, Jesus Thank you that you, O God, entered time and space. You defied all logic, being born of a virgin. And Lord, the truths are rich and they are mysterious to think that you could take on flesh and dwell among us. Lord, as we go to the text, guide us, Lord, as we look at these precious words from Paul to the church at Philippi. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, as you do, ladies, you have an event. I believe that it's at 3 o'clock. You don't want to miss. If you did not get to sign up, uh, see Mary Beth Lundgren. Last minute changes. They might have a space or two, but I think there's like a hundred and 20-some ladies that are going, so enjoy. Men, I hope you have some baloney to fry at home or take care of yourselves somehow. Hopefully you'll sustain. But uh, a business meeting then at 1130 after the service. It's designed for members, but if you are a regular tender or just visiting and want to see and hear what God is doing, I would encourage you to stay. Uh, we've got some exciting things to share as we continue to see God's hand of grace and mercy on CBF. So we rejoice there. Well, Philippians chapter 2 is the text we're looking at. A few years ago, a national survey revealed that while approximately 85% of Americans exchanged gifts at Christmas time, only 51% agreed with the following statement. The birth of Jesus is relevant to my Christmas. Wow. The... Scriptures, the whole focal point, I would argue, of the Old and New Testament is on this one called the Messiah. Jesus is the center of all scripture, central to the gospel, and I would argue a proper understanding of Jesus, your Christology, will inform your theology. It shapes your soteriology, which is the study of salvation, influences our ethics, and governs our eschatology the end times it all comes crashing in And as a group of us pastor michael and ben and i were praying through thinking through what do we do this christmas season we're going to take a little different approach it's a little unique we want to reflect on our christology we want to look at god before time in time what does it mean that he is virgin birth and flow through this and also look to the end so the title of the christmas series our glorious king and you've seen that i'm sure elsewhere and this morning we want to focus on our king jesus who existed from eternity past it's vital and it can get lost in the shuffle when you have that hallmark moment and there's that little nativity set sitting there and little baby jesus is so sweet you know there's more to this story and for many of us we know this for some of us this might be A fresh look at some very important truths that scripture highlights. Starting in verse 6 of chapter 2, Paul is writing to the church at Philippi, a church that he's grown to dearly love. And there's some problems, there's some dissension in the church. Uh, Later he'll mention two ladies, Odie and Stinky, uh, Odia and Syntyche who can't seem to get together. And he uses his Christ as the template for how we are to engage one another. And that's good, but we're looking at it at a different angle today, but that is the backdrop and it's important to what he has to say. The first segment, if you're following along in your notes, is a state of exaltation to an earthly dwelling. And he gives us several truths in the first few verses here. He says, who, though he, that is Christ, existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. In other words, Jesus existed in the form. The the term means his very essence. And intrinsically, Jesus and God are the same. Jesus is nothing less than fully God. The quote we read earlier, heard read from Martin Lloyd-Jones makes that very clear. You deny the deity, the the Godhead of Christ, then you got a real problem. In the early church, we'd stone you. We won't do that today. But it misses the point of who this Jesus really is. And Paul's highlighting this. He's saying that he, though he existed, and this is an idea of a continuation. He's always been God, Jesus. He will always be God. Even when he came as a baby, which we'll look at in a minute. In the New Testament, there are hundreds of explicit verses. I would argue where Jesus is called God or Lord or a number of titles that are given to God the Father are also referred to in Jesus. There are also many passages that attribute actions or words to Jesus that could only be true of God. And all of these verses together affirm the absolute deity of Jesus. Think of John one one. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God, and the word was. And it's a very unique uh, Greek construction. John is saying, and He was fully God. He's making a distinction there, which is unique. You're not saying He's He's not equated with God. Yes, He is in essence, but He's still distinct as a person. So He is fully God. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God, and the word was God, and the word was fully God. Hebrews 1 is another passage. In fact, turn there. Let's look at this powerful text later in the New Testament. In fact, Hebrews 1, if you had time later today, is not at 3, ladies. But later on, at Hebrews 1 and Philippians 2 have many similarities. It would be an interesting comparison. But notice what the writer of Hebrews states at the beginning. After God spoke long ago, in various portions and in various ways to our ancestors through the prophets in these last days it, 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 it indicates this is this is the, what we've looked to the fulfillment he god has spoken to us watch this in a son away in a manger no crib for the bed All Right. That little baby, that's his son, whom he appointed heir over all things through whom he created the world. The son is the, watch this, the radiance of his glory, the representation of his essence. He sustains all things by his powerful word. And so when he's accomplished cleansing for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This text is powerful because, similar to Philippians 2, we see that Jesus is the heir of all things. He's the creator of all things. He participates in the divine's name. He's not a reflection of God's glory. That was Moses after he saw the backside of God, right? He came down, and everyone was like, Whoa, you shine bright because of the glory of God that you saw. He, Moses reflecting it, not Jesus. He is the very essence. He participates in the glory. He's the manifestation. John later writes in chapter 1, after he's exalted this Jesus, he says, listen, we beheld his glory. The last time glory was seen was when the the Shekinah glory left in Ezekiel and now has come back in the embodiment of Christ. The writer of Hebrews says he's the representation of his essence. That term is interesting. It's minting a coin. It's the exact representation. Jesus did not become the son of God by virtue of his work or was appointed later as Lord and son. I had a former colleague who embraced this. That is heresy. No, no, no. This is not what scripture teaches. Jesus was God before creation. Jesus was the son of God from eternity. And the writer of Hebrews tells us he's the sustainer of all things. He is the dweller of the divine preeminence. And so that writer of Hebrews, which we're seeing here in Philippians 2, we see the eternality of God, his divine nature. We see his earthly uh, human nature as being highlighted and his exaltation. So let's jump back to Philippians 2, establishing that this is not something foreign. Paul just didn't make this up but rather it's in keeping with the rest of the New Testament that this Jesus is also God. And he says, Who though he existed in the form of God, which tells us, again, Bethlehem was not the beginning for Jesus of Nazareth. He pre-existed. And again, if he didn't pre-exist, Christ could not be God. In fact, God or Christ would be a liar. He, He says... You see me, you see the Father, I and the Father are one. So, either Jesus is some lunatic or a liar, or he truly is God, and he's eternal. Which is a difference between pre-existence, right? You can pre-exist, angels pre-existed before the earth, but they were not eternal, they were created. Jesus is eternal. Jesus stated, remember in John, he says, before Abraham, I am. I was, I, and I am. <laughs> it indicates that centuries before Abraham, Christ was there. And so he's pre existent, he is eternal. And then Paul gives this declaration he did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. Well, Jesus and God are the same essence. They're distinct in person. And you're going to see this here. And, and Paul's very careful to highlight this. But when you see this second phrase of verse 6, I don't know about you, but the first time I heard it, I scratched my head going, wait a minute, what is Paul saying here? Is he saying that Jesus was an eager beaver and he tried to vie for God's position or that he was seeking to create a coup to take over the heavenly realm? No. That was Satan, <laughs> and he was unsuccessful. No, we're talking here about an attitude of the pre-existent Son, who who He already existed as fully God. In regard to His divine status, this is where we see His attitude. He did not regard equality with God as excusing Him. This is the key from the task of redemptive suffering and death, but a unique qualification for the assignment. One scholar writes in his book on the origin of Christology, he says, "The pre-existing son regarded equality with God not as excusing him from the task of redemption, but actually as uniquely qualifying him for that vocation." That's loaded. That's powerful. And, and that's what we're saying here, is that Jesus understood his role and think about it, not my will. He prayed in that garden but your will so understanding no i'm this is my role within the godhead he states that goes on paul states but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave emptied himself is loaded <laughs> and i 've heard some crazy ideas here how how what does this mean? He gave up his pre incarnate glory did did he set aside certain attributes that were part of the Godhead when he became that little baby? If he gives up anything he's no longer God right he can't give up anything if and, and to, to argue well there are certain attributes that that were not utilized in the sense that they were set aside. That's entirely unjustifiable. They're, they're necessary because he's fully God. And I think the, the catch here is the, phrase, the, the preposition. Look what he says, or the participle. But he emptied himself by taking on. It, there's no subtraction here. He didn't give up anything. He emptied himself by leaving that pre-incarnate glory and becoming human. By taking on human form. And so the term self-emptying, by the way, if you want to impress your friends, that term is called kenosis. Uh, I won't give you a quiz over it, but um, it, it refers to the Lord giving uh, by taking on is really what's comp- what is seen here. So the Lord did not compromise his deity There are three implications for this. Bear with me. Some of you are going, man, this is deep. I know. Hold on here. All right. The union of Christ to an unglorified humanity involves divine condescension. He has to come down. And think about it. Jesus is subject to temptation, distress, weakness, pain, sorrow. That's all part of being human. Yet he's still fully God. So... What happens to some of those attributes? Well, often scholars will talk about a veiling of his pre-incarnate glory. The, the, the glory was, we see glimpses of it. He knew where Nathaniel was by the fig tree. There are certain things he's cognizant of. He can heal people who are dead. Um, and so we see some of his divine attributes, but, but often it's veiled. We know later in John 17, Jesus will state, and now, Father, glorify me at your side with the glory I had with you before the world was created. So it tells us that it's veiled when he walks this globe. I love the second verse of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Listen to the lyrics. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Listen to this. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, held the incarnate deity. Pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. There it is. Such rich theology nestled in hark the herald angels sing. Second Corinthians eight, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that although he was rich, and that he was, he became poor for your sakes, so that you by his poverty could become rich. And so we look at this little baby lying in a manger, and Paul says, careful. This is the one who though he existed in the form of God has humbled himself, and he doesn't end there. Notice he says, by taking on the form of a slave. The form is the same term used earlier in verse 6. He's a form of God. In essence, he's the same with human beings. a form of essence. But he takes on the form. So in other words, there is a distinction. Why? Because Jesus is not sinful. He wasn't born with a sin nature. Unlike us. Which has enormous ramifications. One, he could die on the cross for our sins because he's sinless but also satan is going to have to come at him much harder when we were born i couldn't help but sin <laughs> jesus on the other hand did not have a sin nature so satan is going to have to come with him at a nuclear warhead and he does but see thankfully jesus does not sin right and he's a man without sinful nature And again, it's a profound miracle. You say, well, how do you explain all this? I can't. It's a profound mystery. It's the beauty. That's why we're going to need all eternity for him to explain it to us. Right? How can this be that you, the God of the universe, could come down and, 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 and need your diapers changed? Wow. And he says he becomes a slave. Now, you need to know your audience here. The the city of Philippi was a a Roman veterans colony. If you served the military, at the end of your term under the Roman Empire, you received a parcel of land, and usually, at this time, Roman citizenship. And if you're willing to dwell in one of the colonies, these buffer zones, so to speak, Philippi was one of those. So it was great status to live in Philippi. And the thought of being a slave are you kidding? That was beneath them. But it gets worse, because Paul goes on to say, he looked like other men, but by sharing a human nature, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, here it is, to the point of death. There's not any death. It was capital punishment. It was death on a cross. And I assure you, everyone in that audience, upon hearing those words, there was a gasp, and a recognition, yes. This is what the God of the universe did for us. Like going to an electric chair, but actually far worse. Cicero, an ancient writer said, uh, speaking of crucifixion, he said, let the very name of the cross be far away, not only from the body of a Roman citizen, but even from his thoughts, his eyes and his ears. It was not a subject anyone talked about. He didn't address it, <laughs> it was awful. I wrote, God's son left the splendor of heaven for the filth of a manger. The creator of the universe went to the gallows as a criminal. He endured humiliation and scorn from his creation in order to restore his creation. He renounced his pre-incarnate state to secure our salvation. No wonder one scholar writes, Christ went down into death, voluntary endurance of unutterable anguish. That's our savior. That's the baby lying in the manger. (laughs) It's the God of the universe who stooped down to dwell among us. Paul doesn't end here. And this is where it gets really good. He says, as a result, therefore, because of Christ's humility, because of Christ's obedience, he's vindicated and he's exalted. It says, as a result, God exalted him and gave them the name that is above every name. Now this isn't a doctrine of works, be careful here. The son acted in dependence on the Holy Spirit and he acquiesced to the will of the Father. Jesus did not obey to please himself or to force God's hand on anything. Again, not my will, but your will be done. And so the the Lord will exalt Jesus to the position of supreme authority and that is to truly, all honor will be given to him. Notice it says, at that name, it says that they will give him the name that is above every name. What is the name? Scholars debate this. And let me give you three views if you want to write these down. But one is that simply referring to God's presence, that is the name. That is the object of adoration and praise. So the name is used more of a symbolic sense. He's got the glory, the adoration. Viable, I don't think it's the cleanest. Another view says, no, 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 no. The name is the Lord. He's given Yahweh. Uh, Ernst uh, Kaiserman and some other scholars argue that Christ was hidden, at least in his full glory when on earth, and now it's fully revealed that indeed he is God. I have a problem with that one too, because throughout John's gospel, for instance, we see from John 1, I beheld his glory, and several times Jesus says, I am. Uh, and Thomas makes that glorious declaration later at the end of the gospel, my Lord and my God. So it, it, it seems to me it was revealed even in Christ's life. I think the most viable option is that the name refers to Jesus. It could be translated, this two sentences, as such. God highly exalted him, Jesus, bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name, that is the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. You see, it's because of what Jesus did, the most sacrificial self-emptying any human has done, it becomes the highest of all earthly names, that is Jesus. Jesus. Robert Boyd wrote this little poem. He says, You your love has won. You are the conqueror now. A name beyond all other names is yours. O oh, blessed Jesus, at your name I bow, and I worship you with all created powers. And notice it's exactly what happens. It says, Every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. In other words, it is one gigantic worship service. <laughs> It's universal. Notice it says every knee in verse 10 and every tongue, verse 11, in every location, whether it's in the heavens, the angelic host, under the earth, here I think referring to demonic forces, or humanity, all gather round. Most scholars argue there's an illusion here of bowing the knee to Isaiah. Now bear with me because it's so powerful. It'll make your socks roll up and down. Isaiah 45 says, Turn to me so you can be delivered, all you who live in the earth's remote regions, for I am God. I have no peer. Now listen, I solemnly make this oath that I say is true and reliable. Surely every knee will bow to me. This is Isaiah, verse 45. Every tongue will solemnly affirm. They will say about me, Yes, the Lord is a powerful deliverer. All who are angry at him will cower before him. All the descendants of Israel will be vindicated by the Lord. That's Isaiah 45, which is, I think, clearly being alluded to here in Philippians 2. Why is it so significant? The context of Isaiah 45 is Yahweh speaking to all the gods, all those who practice idolatry. He says, I am the true God. How ironic that that text would be applied to Jesus because what are we saying? That God of Israel is the only true God, and that God is also Jesus. Don't miss it. It's so powerful. Paul is teaching that Jesus shares in the same divine nature as the Lord. He is equal to the Father in all respects. It's huge. Every name will bow at this one who is named Jesus. And notice the reverence is given, it says they will confess what? In verse 11, that Jesus is Lord. If the reverence is given to him. And again, uh, Isaiah 42. I am the Lord. This is my name. I will not share my glory with anyone else or praise do me with idols. Again, in other words, the father not only gave his son a name that is above all names, he bestowed all authority that goes with his elevated position. It's a, it's a title of office. It speaks to his essence, Jesus is Lord here in the sense that he will rule over all the earth. Colossians states, not only is Jesus the creator of the universe, it was sustained through him and it is for him. And so we see that this gigantic worship service is universal. That reverence is given to Christ. It's futuristic. Notice it says every knee will bow. There's a day coming. (laughs) There's a day coming. When those who've used Jesus' name in profanity are going to have to give it praise. The glorification of the Father is still seen to the glory of God the Father. When the universe confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord, the Father will be pleased. For his, his, for his purposes will be fulfilled and his plans realized. One theologian writes, the whole exaltation of Christ in the present and in the future is directed toward this, that God shall be all and in all. So, we just walk through some very deep theological truths. How does this apply to us? Let me give you three. They're in your notes. First, apart from divine intervention, we would have no peace, hope, or forgiveness. The incarnation of Christ, that is, Christ taking on flesh, made redemption possible. Our daughter is singing in a musical at their school, Christmas, well, they call it holidays, but uh, Christmas program. The whole theme of it's called Peace, Love, and Joy. And I had to sit there and I wanted to shout, I know the source, it's Jesus. Joy to the world, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow. Repeat the sounding joy. It's not just a sweet baby lying in a manger. This is the Lord Almighty, the creator of the universe, the great I am. This is the one who was and is and is to come. It's not just a sweet baby lying in a manger. It's the son of David, the promised one, the Messiah. It's not just a little sweet baby lying in a manger. It's the Savior, the one who bore the wrath we deserved and who was victorious over death. It's not just a sweet baby lying in a manger. It's the Good Shepherd, the one who entered our world, forgives our sins, and eventually will wipe away our tears and right the wrong. No, it's not just a sweet little baby lying in a manger. It is the King of Kings. It is our Christ. It is our Lord. Is this baby just a sweet story for you so that you can embrace it with your hot cocoa as you watch your Hallmark movie? Hmm. Is it a story relegated to warm, fuzzy feelings and sweet family times around a Christmas tree? Or is that sweet baby something far more? Do you know him as the pre-existing God who came to earth to make atonement for your sins, to die on the cross for you? I would dare say There's someone here this morning (laughs) who you know a lot about Jesus, but you really don't know Jesus. You've not embraced him. Embrace the gift. It's one thing to leave the gift under the tree and say, it looks really pretty. I'm not gonna open it. I'm not gonna take it. It's never yours. God has given a gift. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Divine intervention, second point of your notes, entailed indescribable humility and overwhelming grace and love. (laughs) Psalm 138, let them sing about the Lord's deeds, for the Lord's splendor is magnificent. The Lord is exalted. He looks after the lowly. How can he do that? Because he entered time and space. He humbled himself By taking on our form and dwelling among us. The Lord didn't give us a program, He gave us a person. The Lord didn't give us a handbook, He gave us Himself. Faithful is the saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. What love, what grace. And finally, divine intervention encourages us to persevere in our faith. We have a high priest who sympathizes with us, yet without sin. Our lives need to be one of worship, whether we're brushing our teeth or buying tacos. I try to get the alliteration in there. Like that? Yeah. No. The Lord needs to be glorified. There was an old chorus we used to sing at Christmas time, which I loved What Can I Give Him? What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what can I give him? I'll give him my heart. That's what the Lord is looking for. So when you set out your nativity set, if you haven't already done it, and you look at that little baby there, don't forget, that's God in the flesh who dwelt among us. As we enter this Christmas season, may we not forget who is it that's lying in that bed made of straw. It is our God in the flesh. Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, writes, God didn't meet us halfway. He refused to hold back, cautious assessing our worth when we, despite our smiles and civility, were running from God as fast as we could building our own kingdoms, living our own glory, lapping up fraudulent pleasures of the world, repulsed by the beauty of God and shutting up our ears as he called us home. It was then to our hollowed horror that that he reveals his existence. The prince of heaven bade his adoring angels farewell. It was then that he put himself into the murderous hands of these very rebels and a divine strategy planned from eternity past to rinse muddy sinners clean and hug them into his heart despite their squirmy attempt to get free and scrub themselves clean on their own. Isn't that great? This is our God. So we come to communion. Most appropriate in light of Philippians 2, isn't it? If we come to the communion this morning, I think we need to spend some time first in prayer. If you've not received one of the cups slash breads, they're here. I think we need to spend some time just bending our knee before our Lord. The Lord requires pure hearts in coming to the communion table. If you don't know Jesus, this isn't for you. It's, it's, it's an act of remembrance. And for those of us who do know Christ, we're told to come with pure hearts. Why? Well, it's the least we could do in light of what he accomplished for us. It was desires to make us pure and righteous. And so this this morning, let's spend some time just reflecting on, as we enter this Christmas season, what God has done for us. The design was this all along. Christ understood that because he said, Lord, it is your will and not mine. And Father, as we come to again this Christmas season with all its joy and festivities and that it deserves, at the same time, Lord, we are humbled to think That you, the God of the universe, would orchestrate events, a plan in motion that would cost your son's life. And more than that, that he would bear the weight of our sin upon his shoulders. (laughs) No wonder Paul says, who has known the mind of the Lord? We marvel at your grace. You could have just obliterated the earth, started over you could have put in a a chip where all of us automatically acquiesce. No. In your love and your grace, you have given us option to respond and to follow after you. And in your love and your grace, you made it possible because your son entered time and space. And so, Father, we thank you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the incarnation. Thank you for the resurrection. And what a day it will be in the exaltation when every tongue will confess that our Savior Jesus is indeed Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. The one who existed in the form of God took on the form of a slave. It was with this body... That he gave, or it is this body that he gave for you and for me. So when we take the bread, we remember Christ's words This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The one who existed in the form of God did not take advantage of his status as Paul highlights, but he humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. The blood that was shed on that cross was shed for us. (laughs) So as we take the cup, may we remember Christ's words, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this every time you drink it in remembrance of me. Father, thank you. Thank you for that glorious name, your Son, our Savior, Jesus, in whose name we pray.